Welcome to the Speckled Truth Podcast. This is the only show dedicated to the conservation of the trophy trout population from the East Coast to the Gulf Coast. Here, we go below the surface to discuss what happens when science and anglers work together for a cause. So gear up with the crew as they talk about all things big speckled trout. Get ready for the slimy, salty truth, better known as the speckled truth. Hey everyone, want to welcome you back to the Speckled Truth Podcast. Captain Chris here, overlooking the shores of Corpus Christi Bay, wedged between Yoso uh, here at the Heart Research Institute. Uh, with Dr. Greg Stuns, Quentin from the Heart Research Institute, and Captain Wayne Davis. So we got ourselves a crew uh, here in the uh, conference room here in Heart Research Institute. We're going to cover a lot of things today. Uh, but first, I want to welcome everyone to the show, Doc, Quentin, Wayne. Well, thanks. We're happy to be here, Chris. Right. We've listened to your podcast, probably every one of them. And so we're just thrilled that, that you've asked us to be on here and talk about some of the work we've got going on at the Sportfish Center. That's awesome. Wayne? Yes. Uh, <laughs> nice little getaway from Fort Mansfield, two-hour drive northbound, and uh, I'm happy to be here. You know, I've developed a good relationship with uh, the Heart Research Institute and obviously the Speckled Truth and yourself personally, yeah. and I'm just glad to be part of the podcast up here at HRI. Yeah, and so we, we obviously recorded a podcast earlier this year, and, and looking over the course of time, obviously you do a lot of work with, with Doc and, and team, and so uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that as the kind of show progresses. But Quentin, welcome, man. Oh, we're thrilled to be here. Thanks for having us. You got it, man. You got it. So uh, if we can, before we go ahead and kind of dive into the discussion, because uh, again, we, we do have a lot of stuff to discuss. Doc, if you don't mind, Quentin, um, tell really our audience, because our audience just isn't Texas bound, right? It, it, it extends all the way up to the east eastern shore, really. Uh, and so folks from Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, uh, into Florida and obviously along the Gulf Coast, a lot of listenership, a lot of listenership. And, and I think it's to do our due diligence to understand a little bit more about what the Heart Research Institute does. And so if you can take a few moments to kind of tell everybody what you what they do and kind of how you came about to be um, yeah. in, involved. Sure, sure. So you're, we're at Texas A&M University in Corpus Christi. So I'm a professor and so we run a research lab and that sort of thing. I don't, I don't do the professing gig much anymore. My time is 100% research and the Heart Research Institute is an endowed institute to do work in the Gulf of Mexico and it's part of A&M Corpus Christi and within the Heart Institute, I mean, it's, it's founded for the namesake, Ed Hart, who endowed this institute. Mm -hmm. Most people think we're cardiologists and can't figure out why <laughs> fisheries guys are at a Heart Institute, but, but it's the name of the founding donor and his, his he was really passionate about the Gulf of Mexico. And within the Heart Institute, we have the Sport Fish Center. It's really the center for sport fish science and conservation. And so we're dedicated to doing all sorts of, of work related to sport mm -hmm. fish and recreational fisheries from tiny little fish, your pinky nail size, all the way up to mako sharks, some of the largest fish in the ocean. But our passion really revolves around speckled trout and spotted sea trout. That's mm -hmm. kind of the, what we work on, what we love to work on, what we love to fish for. I don't think anyone that works for me, there's about 20 of us in the Sport Fish Center. We're all passionate. We love fishing and, and love working with recreational anglers to, to answer science. But what our real mission is, is to really empower recreational anglers with science to become better fishermen. And so that means, you know, what are if you want to know how to catch fish and why you're catching fish and the reasons behind that, we generally have the science for that. Mm -hmm. A lot of our work focuses around catch and release, and everyone wants to know, does catch and release work? And we have the science that backs that up. And so essentially we teach anglers how to be wise stewards of the resource and good conservationists with science, but also how to become better fishermen. 
That's all. So, Quentin, I mean, how'd you get involved? Are you a grad student or? Yeah, I came down to uh, Texas in 2013. Um, was actually in Missouri at the time, and Greg uh, threw me a life raft and, and pulled me out of the Midwest <laughs> and got me down on the coast. And I've been here ever since. And I got my master's degree under Dr. Stuns, and he hired me for some reason. So I'm, I'm still here. That's awesome. That's <laughs> a, the one thing I will say uh, with regards to not only yourselves, but your availability and, and your transparency to some extent, right? Because um, social media obviously can be a real, uh, pain in the butt. Oh yeah. <laughs> admittedly. But on the same token is I think, uh, what you guys have done and, and really in, in works alongside with, you know, Captain Wayne, which is really educating. And that was very, very relevant, um, right after the freeze, right. That we just had, and just talking to people about, you know, the freeze, the impacts of the freeze, what they can probably expect, X, Y, and Z. And that was, you know, again, through you guys, transparency, availability. And I was actually telling Wayne on the way down here. So, you know, I'm driving to work every day and I try to stay in tune with current events um, as a result of just being in the Air Force, world events, et cetera. And there was a TPR kind of episode. And there it is. There was Dr. Greg Stunz talking about some something that was going on along the Texas coast. And and I was like, wow, that's that's pretty awesome. So to come full yeah. circle, sit in your conference room and and talk about, you know, admittedly, what we all love is, is speckled trout. So that's awesome. So, all right, so let's get into it. So the first thing we wanted to, I think, all get into, and you kind of alluded to it right off the jump, which was catch and release and, and, and how it does work. And so doing a lot of dart tagging, particularly with Captain Wayne, uh, we talked a little bit earlier about uh, some of the acoustic tagging that you did with Captain Mike McBride. I read that yeah. article. I think it was uh, fish have tails and they know how to use them. Exactly. Is, is the, yeah. So yeah. if you can kind of talk to us a little bit about, uh, not only your own personal side, but from a, from a scientific side about catch and release, it's, it's theory and, and whether or not it works. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to your earlier point related to that, you know, the, the guides, all the ones you've had on, on your show, you know, are, are top of the top, including Wayne, of course, sitting right here. And I think we've worked with every one of them because they're so passionate about what they do. They want to understand the science and what it means to be a good conservationist. So we really have a big passion for working with just regular anglers as well as guides to what we call do citizen science. science. That means they participate in the data collection mm -hmm. process. And not only are they willing, but it, it gives a completely sort of different experience uh, when you're actually sort of contributing to the science. And also, you know, the, the people like Wayne and and others on the water, I mean, they there's a valuable resource there that we've never really tapped scientifically, and so mm -hmm. we've spent a lot of time doing that, and of course, as you mentioned, in social media, um, we really want our work to get out there. We, we want to make a difference, and we want our work to, not science that sits on a shelf, but that others can use to, mm -hmm. to actually um, um, carry out their passion. But we really got our start um, looking at catch and release of spotted sea trout. That's, that's mm -hmm. sort of where we got recognized, and at the time, uh, some of you might remember, you know, they were going to increase the size to 25 inches and put a slot limit. And everyone said, oh, those, those fish are dead. They don't survive at all. And so we embarked on a whole series of study. I mean, thousands of trout we tagged and released in a variety of methods. And overall, 90% of those fish survived. It was really surprising. And just like you're saying, still to this day, I don't give a talk that someone says, there's no way those fish survive. <laughs> but I'm telling you, we, we, we put it through the science and put it through the test. Uh, uh, and, and those fish, about 90% of your trout are making it in the catch and release process. And so y'all were able to validate that uh, through the acoustic tagging because y'all set up 
I guess, responders or in, in throughout yeah. the various fisheries or yeah. estuaries? Well, we did, we did all kind of things, Chris. Of course, it started out as catching them and holding them in pens for a period of time, okay. you know, and just seeing what happened. Yeah. And of course, then we tag and release those as well. And of course, some didn't like that because they said, well, yeah, of course, the dolphin are going to get them and everything else. And in the meantime, technology was progressing. And the technology today we have as our, at our hands as scientists is just overwhelmingly good and we can put these small tags in the trout we do a small surgical implantation so in reality rather than just regular catch and release you know we're handling the fish they're going through small surgery and being stitched up so they're being handled even more Mm -hmm. than than you would just a quick photo and release or something like that and so once we put these electronic tags and we had listening arrays throughout the the coastal bend um that really convinced people, I think, that, you know, we put the trout back right on the spot. Of course, you had you had folks like Mike McBride and Jay Watkins and David Rousey, I mean, leaders in the field, you know, hands-on helping us, you know, insert the tags. And they were some of our best champions of, of, of catch and release. And so it really demonstrated the fact that, 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 that it worked. And I guess I should say too, Chris, just to be clear, we, we do not, we are not solely catch and release. We think keeping a few fish is a very important cultural part of the sport and, and enjoying a nice dinner and that sort of thing. But the, the, the pressure on our fishery is just becoming so great that we're going to have to become wide stewards of the resource and sort of the meat hall mentality of those days are probably over those really special trout in my mind, you know, mid to upper twenties and especially the bigger ones you know, they kind of deserve to be released. They kind of made it. We want those genes in the gene pool. So we give that science back to the anglers that, hey, if you want to practice this process, and we don't fault anyone for keeping some few fish to eat for dinner, how how can they be ensured they're doing it in a way that it's scientifically sound? And, mm-hmm. and that's sort of what we, a, a main focus of our Sport Fist Center, our partnership with Wayne and others. Yeah. And that was, I mean, as y'all have heard throughout the podcast, it's kind of been our motto is take what you need and release the rest. Again, yeah. It's about changing a mindset of really being responsible in terms of what you actually harvest. And I'll actually want to pull the thread on one specific topic um, a little bit later as it relates to that. But again, it's about taking what you need and releasing the rest, right? And so uh, if we can kind of instill that mentality, and and I'm sorry, everyone, because you do hear this every week, but nonetheless, um, it is. It's about, you know, being responsible, harvest because of the pressure and it becoming so great across the estuaries that... Yeah, I mean, if we want to continue to have a fishery, a very healthy, a resilient fishery, we have to take an active approach in that. And I think that's a simple way with some slight yeah. sacrifice that gives back on a, on a much larger scale uh, to the overall fishery. So, uh, Wayne, and, and, and I know you guys have been participating in some dart tagging recently. Uh, what have you all kind of seen there and kind of what's your approach to that? Yeah, real quick, I'm going to jump back to something that Dr. Greg said that <clears throat> sparked my memory or my mind on something. What better time to recognize the Heart Research Institute than now? We've been, uh, we saw extreme high fish, fishing pressure coupled with a, a major freeze. Yep. And, and, you know, a lot of us were doing things before that even happened, right, to preserve our fishery. And now we need to identify what Dr. Greg is talking about, mm-hmm. the science behind it, how it works, and that might springboard us into a better um, rebound. Yeah. Well, time. I mean, that's just, it's, it's just a good time to recognize Dr. Greg and the science behind yeah. it for those that may not know or believe that the science actually works to catch and release. They're going to live, release them and we can move on down the road and get our fishery back to where it needs to be. Well, well the appetite's clearly there and the science mm-hmm. is also there. And now mm-hmm. we're kind of given the science to kind of meet the appetite. And so e- hopefully exactly. that's, whew, 
you know, just exactly. keep moving forward. Certainly yeah. with the freeze, now is the time. But some of your listeners, Chris, may not realize, you know, we are really living in, in, in the good old times in a way, in the sense that we've got a lot of fish. Now, this is pre-freeze, of course, you know, that, that's, that's a different deal. But um, in terms of the, the abundance of fish, but what people don't realize is there's so, well, I'm sure everyone realizes on a Saturday afternoon, <laughs> Saturday afternoon on the tide gauge bar, but I mean, in general, there's so many more fishermen, and I think it really hit home in your podcast um, last week with Cliff, Cliff Webb, where you really look back at, wow, what was the fishing like when you could go on a misty day in February and not, you're the only boat in Baffin Bay? Yeah. You know, that that's just doesn't happen anymore, and so that's that's what I think the difference is and why catch and release becomes so important that, yeah, there are fish around, maybe not the 30 inches like Cliff was discussing at that level, but, but there's still a lot of fish there and there will be, we'll even recover eventually after the freeze. But, um, we just want to practice. We want to conserve what we have. And that's why catch and release is going to become important because while there's a lot of fish, everyone's slice of that pie has gotten smaller and smaller because there's so many people and we just have to work together to ensure for future generations, we, we can preserve what we have. Yeah, we went to Snoopy's right after recording that. So um, uh, me, Cliff, we met Jay and Lowell Odom, and we're sitting at Snoopy's, and it is a Saturday, beautiful <laughs> weather. I mean, it was crazy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and it's just like, how, how does even one of these make it? You know, because there's just so many so many people. But again, you know, the participation's great. It's it's recruiting the, the right type of participation, I think, mm-hmm. into the fishery. And if we all, all are all going to participate, then we're all going to have to do something to kind of help foster and make sure it's it's good to go long term so getting back to yep. the dark turk dark tag stuff god i can talk today yeah no thanks um so i met i mean people already know i met dr greg at a cca talk in san antonio and and uh and and empty stringers came up so we hit it off obviously real quick because of the empty stringers catch and release program and what he was doing and, and we started just talking about fishing out of mansfield and snook came up is how it started and I said, hey, I'm actually catching some snook in Mansfield. And he goes, how about we don't have any data on snook? So can, if I give you some tags, can you, can you tag these snook and mm-hmm. we'll see what happens with it? You know, it's kind of a long shot. And I was like, yeah, sure. But can I tag big trout and flounder too <laughs> along the way just to keep it interesting? Because snook fishing can, is, can be challenging. So they agreed. So I started doing the snook obviously the trout over 25 inches and I that does vary some because if I see a 23 incher that just looks genetically gifted I'm going to try to tag it and, yeah and just to, just to see where it goes and flounder so we started that and then the snook thing really took off and we've 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 been able to capture recapture some some significant percentage I guess for a snook yeah. three out of 28 recaptured yeah, really pretty big I don't know what really the percentage is but it's high yeah. Yeah. That covered quite a bit of ground, too, between where you tagged them and where they were recaptured. So that was some pretty interesting stuff for us to take a look at as well. In so a we short are period getting of time. getting some, some decent data out of that. So, Quentin, are you kind of crunching the numbers in terms of the data and kind of tracking? It depends the on the project. Uh, the way that uh, our lab is structured, we all kind of have individual specialties. Um, right now, we're kind of uh, amassing more data on the snook before we really can say anything definitive. Mm-hmm. Um, but what Wayne is doing is providing some of that preliminary data that can be used to justify a, a larger, more complete study. And that's that's why mm-hmm. this is so important for us. Yeah. What about trout? I mean, have you been, kind of been involved, super involved with yeah, any of those Yeah. Uh, over the years, I think uh, like Greg said, it's kind of one of our, our bread and butter favorite species to work with. So I think over the years, everybody in the lab has probably participated in some way, shape, or form with the trout study. Um, I know that uh, we did a, a pretty intensive uh, trout t- uh, tracking study in Mesquite Bay uh, that was kind of surrounded surrounding when Cedar Bayou was reopened. 
and kind of looked at how they reuse use that pass once it was reopened. Mm -hmm. And we got some really interesting stuff there. Um, that data hasn't been analyzed. Uh, we're in the process of actually uh, publishing that paper, which uh, I should probably turn and burn on that for you, Greg. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. <laughs> get to work. We're yeah, waiting. But, well, Quentin, uh, Quentin, just to chime in, you know, uh, Cedar Bayou's this iconic inlet that's just north of us. Many of your listeners will have fished it, if not, you know, recognize the value. Quentin, part of his work and some of the groundbreaking science, you know, the discoveries he made was just how valuable that inlet was, how it was just like a light switch flipped mm -hmm. when it opened. And so he's been spending a lot of time not only studying small fish and, and what we call recruitment through that inlet that support our fisheries, but also how big fish such as redfish and other things move out in and out of that inlet to spawn and that sort of thing. Of course, it's silted in, but being dredged now as we speak. And so I wanted to kind of understand that a little bit more. So I think that was a CCA project that actually opened open Cedar Bayou back up. Is that correct? Yes, yeah, several groups led by the CCA okay. and others and some of the political leadership over in Rockport, um, Judge Mills's team and others acquired. It was a large $6 million. I think it ended up being costing even more than that in the end to dredge it. Uh, unfortunately, when Hurricane Harvey came along, it was just south. I would have predicted you could have driven an oil tanker through it <laughs> because <laughs> Harvey went right over it, but it was just south enough that it filled it with sand rather than mm -hmm. scouring it open. And it's been trickling back and forth ever since then, but there's an initiative right now, and well, Quentin should probably fill us in. What? Yeah, what the so the, is, uh, like Greg said, after Hurricane Harvey uh, filled the, the bayou back in, um, about two or three years later, um, through negotiations through the county and a couple of other groups, uh, FEMA actually uh, put quite a bit of money towards reopening it, and I believe last month they actually have equipment on site okay. to start dredging it again, and it should be done, I believe, by October. Yeah, because that was the first time I'd really kind of understood maybe a little bit more about Cedar Bayou. Again, I'm not necessarily from here. Uh, I li I've lived here now, I think, a total of eight years of my military career, but nonetheless, I've, I've enjoyed kind of learning more about the coast, but not necessarily being from here, how, again, a historical, iconic, if you will, uh, past that that was and so understanding that CCA because that's where I heard about it was Shane Bonneau and John Blaha had Jay Watkins on the Coastal Advocacy Adventures podcast which is CCA's podcast talking about it opening back up and then through kind of you know conversation with many of our listeners many of our followers who fish that that complex if you will uh, they saw a tremendous improvement almost immediately yeah right after it opened mm -hmm. so it's it's amazing how something from like hydrological flow of, in just in general, uh, just opens up uh, a new it, new estuary. Yeah, and it's more than just uh, just the, the hydrology of that area. So, with Texas being a, a unique state in the sense that uh, barrier islands kind of separate the open Gulf from most of our our, our bay systems. Those tidal inlets like Cedar Bayou provide physical access for adult redfish to go offshore and spawn. And then conversely, for those young to come back mm -hmm. in to the bays and settle out in the seagrass beds, which is where they grow. And the reason that Cedar Bayou is so unbelievably important is because it is the only access point, the only tidal inlet for almost 80 miles of coastline. So um, the nearest one to the south being the, the Port Aransas Inlet and the, the nearest one to the north being Pascavallo up by Port O'Connor. And so you've got some of the best seagrass beds in all of Texas um, in you know, like Mesquite Bay and mm -hmm. southern you know, San Antonio Bay. And the only way for those young recruiting redfish and, and flounder and blue crabs and shrimp, all the stuff that we like to catch and eat or that you know, sport fish rely on for a food source, 
Um, the only way for those those babies from those those animals to access these uh, nursery areas is through Cedar Bayou. So mm-hmm. when that inlet is closed, there's no recruitment or you know young coming back into the base to grow. And so it was really unfortunate with Hurricane Harvey is right about the time that that all those animals that came back in the first year were starting to get big enough to catch. Um, the bayou closed again, and so there's going to be another, you know, dip, mm-hmm. uh, more or less, where there's going to be less life in that area for a couple of years, and then with it being reopened, hopefully in the next, you know, three to five years, you'll start seeing more animals in that area again. In, in just general interest for me, because I am right. I mean, these are very large organizations. FEMA, you're talking about CCA, mm-hmm. obviously, and you guys, and you know, uh, part of that as well. I mean. As a, as a, just a general, you know, a regular recreational guy, you know, who comes out and enjoys a fishery, maybe sees kind of these, you know, particularly maybe as a guide, kind of seeing these kind of dips and inclines in terms of fisheries and production and, and things of that nature, how much, you know, uh, of a collaboration, you know, some, a lot of these much larger organizations play a part in terms of uh, overall fish um, environment, you know, in, in the estuary and stuff like that. So, uh, to me, that's just generally interesting of how large yeah. some of these organizations are that actually put a lot of money, a lot of effort, a lot of energy and to kind of study it, uh, make it happen, et cetera. So it's, it's really cool. It's a huge muscle movement. Yeah. And, and it's a, it's a big partnership, you know, and, and so we, of course the, the, you know, work we do like putting transmitters into spotted sea trout are three to $700 a piece. You know, it's not cheap. So, you know, these, these organizations and groups fund, fund that type of work and, and fund the students and scholarships. So, you know, the CCA being one of them, you know, they, they really step up to the plate and put their money where their mouth is in terms of uh, supporting the science that supports the conservation. And, and that's what funded and, and not only, to dredge it, but they also funded studies to monitor it and Quentin's mm-hmm. work. Quentin was being a little bit mod- modest on Cedar Bayou. You know, we have sampled redfish in my career from Sabine Lake to, to down to Port Isabel, and and we see high abundance, a high abundance of juvenile young redfish coming in can be uh, let's say four per square yard, roughly square meter. That's would is very very high. Quentin sometimes was seeing ten times that in Cedar Bayou. I mean, well, it was off the charts good, and it was instantaneous too. I mean, it was uh, within when they actually broke through uh, when they opened it prior to Harvey. Uh, it was at the middle part of September, which is about the time we would start seeing those baby redfish, you know, coming mm-hmm. back in through through the inlet. And I think we sampled up there. It was less than a week after they'd reestablished that connection. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were seeing, like Greg said, this these incredible numbers that we'd never observed anywhere else on the coast. But what really throws that even the you know, sharper relief is that prior to that bayou being reopened, we didn't find a single juvenile redfish up there for almost three years. Wow. And so within five days of reopening that, we were seeing some of the highest densities anywhere on the Texas coast. That's crazy. Let, let me so, chime in real quick on that, just to get your quick opinion, because Mansfield just opened up. It's 20-foot depth all the way out to the jetties. Um, how how uh, important will that be for our – now, it was open, right? You could, there yeah. was still, it was still passable by small boats. But since it's dredged to that level, do you suspect Mansfield will see an increase in – I think so, Wayne. What what we say is that's Mother Nature's hatchery, and it's hard to compete with that because you have literally millions. You know, each redfish is producing 20 million offspring a year. You know, so you multiply that by those giant spawning schools, you know, near the inlets offshore. That's a lot of productivity. And what happens, you have these lush, pristine nursery habitat 
that they need, but they can't access it. And so Cedar Bayou provided that, of course, Mansfield, because mm-hmm. there's not, it's a sim- similar situation in your area. East Cut is the only one for miles in either mm-hmm. direction. So yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's having access. I mean, we talk about big fish because that's what we like to catch and manage. And, you know, th- that's what we see when they freeze. But where the real action is, is these little fish coming in. You've got to have that supply of individuals constantly replenishing the ones, you know, we're taking out. And so, so having that supply, which is access so they can get to their nurseries and then obviously good habitat so they can grow up and, and recruit um, back into our fishery. So, and then Chris, to follow up your other point, the other groups that are funding like the federal agencies and yeah. the state agencies, the parks and wildlife funds, much of our work as well. Um, that That's a big deal. It allows us to, to do what we do. And, and so, you know, we feel like we have a real obligation to give back to the public particularly the recreational angling public, because that's of most interest to mm-hmm. our work. So they, you know, that's their tax dollars paying for that work and yeah. that they understand that that's being used and going to good purposes and ultimately results, we hope, and more fish at yeah. the end of their line. You know? No, no doubt. No, I, so I think that was a good segue, though, Wayne, you know, with the opening of East Cut in Mansfield now and that, that dredging project being complete, uh, obviously with the productivity of Cedar Bayou, and then now we're coming post freeze i'm sorry i had to bring it up uh, but but i do want to discuss you know obviously we had a freeze earlier this year we are seeing variable numbers and i'd like actually if you don't mind uh doc if you can kind of maybe provide some truth as in terms of maybe what you're hearing obviously we've we've had limit reductions or at least for the short term uh and things of that nature right so well what what we're hearing is very mixed and as i'm sure you and a lot of others uh, listeners are aware is that it depends really where you are on the coast. Some areas weren't affected much at all, particularly some of the Northern areas and many areas like down in Wayne's country in Port Mansfield is probably the bullseye of the worst, worst impact kind of thing. And so it depends where you are. I mean, I guess, you know, a little bit of the silver lining is, I mean, there's some serious impacts and, you know, we all, every winter, you know, we're, you know, sort of not talking (laughs) about the freeze word under our breath because, you know, but eventually, you know, it catches up to you and it's just a natural thing. Mother nature is real resilient, so it will come back. I mean, I'm not worried at all about that, but in terms of a time for catch and release, this, this is it, as we were um, discussing before, we preach something in, in fisheries management called a precautionary approach. And that is when you don't have all the information. And of course the parks and wildlife is still collecting data that we should be hearing about is that you you err on the side of caution and you don't we don't want to we don't want to ruin the the greatest fishing you know we have in in the gulf coast in my opinion and so we want to you know be real conservative with the with the species we keep such as spotted sea trout how many we keep and so i think until we have a good handle on that it's going to be hard to know i i'm i'm feeling pretty good because i'm hearing good reports i mean i think some were even surprised in port mansfield that there's there are some big trout still out there but Mm -hmm. you know not as many as there were and no one likes to see that kind of thing but we we just really won't know till we get those those parks and wildlife numbers back but I'm cautiously optimistic. I mean, there's going to be an impact, but in two years from now, I think we'll be in a little different, different mindset and different situation. But if we want to accelerate that and ensure in two years, we're talking about, you know, 30 mm-hmm. inch trout that we need to, we need to practice catch and release that the redfish don't seem to be hit as hard. I'm a little bit concerned that, you know, people are shifting over to redfish a little bit, which mm-hmm. is what you would do. Cause you want to protect the trout, but at the same time, they don't, they don't need too much pressure either, but you know, they're, they're in better shape. Of course, flounder were spawning offshore. So they're probably not, if, if anything, this might be good for them because they, they, the, the colder the winters get, the better spawns they okay. had. 
So, but we just don't know, Chris, is what it comes down to. So I would encourage your listeners just to really exercise caution and, you know, do you really need those fish? And, you know, we, we've shown scientifically they survive catch and release. You know, this is a time to practice wise conservation, in our opinion. So, I mean, we ordered 3,500 stickers to encourage folks. It was a hashtag that we shout out there. Actually, I'll give you guys some. I have them in my truck for y'all. But it was a release 2021 TX Texas. Yeah. And, and so uh, we asked actually local vendors, Roy's, one, uh, Tackle Box Victoria, um, uh, all, all sorts, uh, Johnny Sports Shop, all the way up the coast and down the coast, hook, line, and sinker just to encourage folks. And, and uh, honestly, uh, we gave away 3,500 lickety split. Yeah. yeah and then, uh, yeah. ultimately reordered a bunch. And so I think it was such an emotional event, I think for all of us, and it gets back to original point, which was, I think the appetite's fairly high for folks wanting to actually yeah. take an active role into their fishery that hopefully we can see. And the intent wasn't nothing, you know, again, just pure catch or release, but again, instill the mindset that hey, if we can lean off this fishery this year, let whatever's left contribute back to the fishery for this year, it only is going to benefit two, yeah. three years down the road, it, right? It seems like a logical that approach. Coverage and, right. and I'm seeing the same thing, uh, Chris, that, you know, the the people are really stepping up to the play. I see a lot of tournaments. They've either gone away from from trout or the Port Aransas Deep Sea Roundup is going on right now. And in fact, they don't have a trout category this year for right. that very reason is mm-hmm. that they felt that, you know, they needed to step back a little bit and and protect that. And, and so, you know, certainly people are still keeping fish. I mean, no one's violating the law right. by keeping spotted sea trout. But, you know, it's it's just a time, and this is, you know, my opinion that, that we want to do what you're saying, accelerate that recovery. And there's Black drum typically aren't a problem. Redfish, there's plenty of things to keep if you want some mm-hmm. dinner and, and give the trout a pass. For yeah, a while. you did. You bring up a good point. There are several tournaments that have, in fact, taken trout out of their lineup, yeah. so to speak. Yeah, um, yeah, a lot. I mean, and a huge one that comes to mind. You know, obviously, uh, a CCA or yeah, the CCA Star. Star. Yeah. Yeah. The Star tournament yeah. took yeah. <laughs> took trout out. That's a big one. Yeah, um, exactly. I think they set the precedence in. In my opinion, well, when they yeah. when they kind of backed out, I think that was like okay. And I'll tell you another big one that comes to mind. Um, you know, not a big one, Port Mansfield fishing tournament. They mm-hmm. took trout out of the lineup, yeah. and the uh, shallow sport tournament. They took yeah. trout out of the lineup, yeah. and uh, that's uh, the estimating fifteen hundred anglers on the bay at one day. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. huge. That's, that's a lot. And and the good news, you know, and one interesting thing we were talking, we kind of went, went off track a little bit, Chris. We're, or I, I went down a rabbit trail <laughs> on something else, but but that you were talking about the catch and release, and you know what you know, when we put those transmitters in, we showed, you know, as I mentioned earlier, that 90% of the fish are surviving. So catch and release does in fact work. And even in tournaments where you imagine these fish are caught in one location, they're held in a live well for a pretty long period of time. They're bounced back to a weigh-in station where they're brought out again and weighed, you know, extensive handling. And we, then we got a hold of them and, you know, sliced open their belly and plopped a tag in (laughs) and then re-released them. And so they got extensive handling, but even those fish that went through all that, and that was even back in the day before people had really figured out live release tournaments. The the tournaments are much better Mm -hmm. today than they were back then. We were seeing 73, 75% survival. So even then, you know, your seven out of 10 fish are, and those of course are typically the larger big mm-hmm. ones. So, so I, I would certainly encourage tournaments that do that to, to do a live release format. It, it's just not that difficult to do and people want to do it. I think yeah. it makes people feel good and they can go on our web pages and read how to do it. If you really want to, really want to do it. So. This season, we'd like to recognize one of our newest sponsors and that is down South lures from their regular four inch Southern shad to the five inch supermodel and versatile three inch burner shads. It's easy to see, 
why these baits have become a go-to for many Texas anglers. Designed with their unique hybrid tail, its natural swims in the fall action produces big trout not only here in the Texas coast, but across all estuaries. Aside from that though, they're made right here in the USA. So be sure to support this Texas brand that supports you in pursuit of that next big bite. Real Sportswear humbly started making shirts for a few local fishermen. Rooted in simplicity and utility, Reel's minimalist approach is a reflection of what binds the fishing industry together. Now found throughout many coastal retailers, their lineup of comfortable and functional gear aims to make your time in the water a success. So next time you're gearing up, wear what guides wear and consider Reel Sportswear. Mirror Lore is an iconic inshore fishing lure company found in every angler's arsenal. From their legendary lineup of lures such as the Top Dog and Catch 2000 to their versatile soft plastics like the Little John and Marshmallow, these lures not only catch fish, but have produced for decades. So whether it's a 17MR or a Paul Brown Cerise Fat Boy, always remember to tie on a mirror lure and turn on the bike. Texas Custom Lures and the original Custom Corky have been podcast sponsors for the first two seasons and we're incredibly appreciative. This Texas brand with inputs from the most respectable guides across the Texas coast complete every big trout angler's arsenal. With great fish catching colors, my personal favorites, Texas Turnip, Bay Mistress, Plum Nasty to name a few, it's easy to see how these things produce time and time again. So next time you're targeting that next big bite, I highly encourage you to fish the original custom Corky. And remember, the big girls aren't colorblind. So one of the things in that uh, article with with Mike was, you know, trout have tails and know how to use them, uh, which we didn't discover. And I want to bring that up because we were talking about it pre-show was, you know, with my dad, with regards to the Tag Louisiana program, tagged a ton of fish, uh, had about a 4% return on his tags. Um, but aside from that, what he, uh, what he saw, and we were talking about that and you had provided a really good point. And I want you to actually bring that back up, but, uh, I, I think it was like three or four that he had tagged, uh, in a certain spot, literally exact spot. A month later, he recaptured that fish. It had grown an inch, um, in literally the same spot. And so, you know, I'm not a scientist in any way, shape or form, I'm just trying to think about it logically. And so if he catches tags, that fish releases it. Okay, and he recaptures it a month later, literally in the same spot, and it's grown an inch. That tells me that, you know, that fish is has an abundance of food. The habitat's right. The salinity's good. No you know, no predation or no predation. Uh, and so that fish is just kind of chilling, eating, growing, and, and doing that thing. But you also offered that may not be the case. Well, you know, and that's that was you know like science. You know, <laughs> we discover things we don't believe all the time. You know, the facts come in and ruin all our great theories we have, and that's exactly what happened with um, uh, these electronic tags. So you're talking about dart tags that are relatively inexpensive, about a dollar a piece. You plop them in, and it relies on anglers to recapture them. Mm -hmm. And then you say, well, it was tagged here, and you caught it here, and that's how much it moved. Well. When we started doing these electronic tags, and, and by the way, we are scientists, and we concluded the exact same thing, that <laughs> yeah. that fish didn't move. And But what happened when, when we started electronic tagging, so we, we insert these little tags um, that send a sound signal roughly about a mile away. And then we have listening stations all throughout the bay, and if the fish get close enough every minute or so it sends out this signal, we can detect where those fish go. And many times, 
uh, Chris, we've seen, we've caught the fish on the exact spot that we've tagged. It's almost the same grass bed. And within 60 days, or depending on how long that fish was gone, it's moved, you know, 60, 70, hundreds of miles sometime. In fact, our average uh, movement for some of the fish, um, th- these were some of the surf trout, were 12 miles a day. Unreal. <laughs> Amazing. We would never would have known that with the with the dart tags that, that rely on recovery. But that's what I mentioned earlier about this technology we have. You know, we can literally track these. We don't track them in real time in the sense that we know where they are at any given moment. But when we go download our receivers that are collecting the data, we know where they've been and what they've done. And so obviously they've experienced um, all the predation pressures of, of other caught and released trout and that sort of thing. And, and they do good, but the most surprising thing is their movement was just astonishing. So it, it, what's the theory and science behind that? I mean, is that just kind of how they, is that natural behavior or yeah, is it, are they trying to get away from something? Well, we just see that, that just that they just kind of roam, you know, they, and there's the, the pattern is there wasn't a real pattern other than they moved a lot. Now, what was weird is that we would, they seem to return to the same area. So there's something about, as we all know, as fishermen, I mean, there are certain areas and sweet spots that just produce over and over. And for whatever reason, whether it's bait or current and habitat the the trout like that and they seem to return there but in the meantime they they're they're movers was that was that uh what's the percentage of trout did you have any just stay or did just most of them not really yeah most of them move but interesting enough so what what the tournaments do and we don't encourage this anymore a live release tournament might have a you know they'll, they'll collect the fish over a period of time and then take a bunch of them out and release them and they generally release them in the same spot well those fish tend to go back they move like so you can imagine a, a way in at bluff marina here you know corpus christi and they're fishing bath and they're all they're all the way down in your neck of the woods weighing and catching fish and and those fish would be released there by the marina and many of them would move south and and move you know they i don't know if you'd call it homing but they they disperse um, yeah I, i've, I've really often quickly. had a theory about the same thing about after since the freeze i said you know eventually these big fish are going to end up back in this spot x yeah and uh and i'll and another thing that was pretty interesting was where i found a bunch of dead fish after the freeze and i thought why are they all bunched up right here you know a big pile of them and yeah. i thought well in about five years i'm I'm be, I know working these areas over, but I've often yeah. thought the big ones are, they, they hone into a particular area for whatever reason. And eventually they will go back yeah. there. Mm-hmm. The small ones will grow up. Well, well, Chris being a Christian release, Chris speaking of Christian <laughs> release, I can't talk here. Catch release. Catch and release. <laughs> um, we, uh, uh, the question I always get, so if 90% of those fish under normal circumstances are surviving, well, what's, what's the 10%, you know, what's, what's <laughs> killing them? And believe me, when we, we had some control fish that we, we had and we did all kind of things. I mean, literally really hand wiping all the slime off of the fish. I mean, how, how could we, you know, kill these kill fish, it. you know, and th- these controls are, and it was difficult. I mean, you just, you, you, you can't really do it. And, and so then the question is, well, what about those 10% that aren't, that aren't, um, making it well? almost always it's a deep hooked fish that's pretty much a death sentence there there another situation if you hooked a fish that have, and has torn its gills and, and the, that's a pretty much mortal inner injury but hooked externally with the body cavity ripped open it hooked in the eye you know top of the head top of the head <laughs> none of that yeah. mattered it was and if you look at how many fish do we catch deep hooked it's about 10 percent <laughs> And the only other factor we saw that, that influenced catch and release, by the way, we looked at hook type, bait type. I mean, you name it. Um, uh, we get a lot of criticism and 
Jay Watkins and I have talked extensively about, he catches all kind of grief over lipping tools, you know, Boga grips. Mm -hmm. They just, we recommend Boga grips and, and we don't see any effect of that. In fact, we think it's better than, than, than handling them and gripping them. But, um, the, the, what we saw was angler skill level. And if you might imagine, so we, we, we had brand new fishermen that we had to say, okay, here's how you cast. <laughs> yeah. First was to get them catch a fish was quite the challenge, but, but anyway, they can't detect the bite as you might imagine. And so they, they had a higher, higher incidence of deep hooks. So it wasn't necessarily, they were a beginner, but they just, they didn't know what to do. And of course the, the fish would swallow the bait. And, but we had to bring in new anglers all the time. Cause real quickly, the good news is new anglers detect that bite real quick (laughs) they become intermediate anglers where there's no effect you know real quick so 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 uh new beginning anglers and deep hooks so if if your listeners are going to keep fish and they deep deep hooked a trout we don't we never had a single one that survived deep hook they we and all by the way we pulled the hook and we cut the hook we did all the things you know that you recommend we still recommend cutting the hook if you pull it it's certain certain And that's not true for redfish or, tra- or flounder or others, but for trout, it's pretty much a death sentence. So if you have a big trout or if you've deep hooked it, you probably should keep it because that's a fish that just, mm-hmm. it's not going to, not going to make it. That, so. that, that's, that's remarkable insight that you guys have even yeah. thought about even yeah, really angling level, experience yeah. level. Oh uh, yeah. Oh, believe point. me, you believe me <laughs> that you, you guys know the arguments of, you know, bait type and especially different oh, yeah. types of natural bait. We tried them all and there's just not, we tried circle hooks, J hooks. Treble, yeah. oh, you know, everyone's talking about, you know, um, um, we fish a lot of single hook topwaters because for the grass, but a lot of people do it for conservation, but those treble hooks don't, three hooks on a super spook don't do any worse than two single hooks, uh, well, <laughs> despite what people say, you know, yeah. you know, we've tested it and, and, and it doesn't look pretty and, and, you know, the, the fish are scarred a little and things, but, but, yeah. um, but we still, you know, I mean, most of the time I'm throwing single hooks on topwaters. One, I think it's safer because I don't need a handful of hooks and i was about yeah. to say i think so i think for most people they they've kind of come to okay it's probably better for the fish but i think really what it boils down to is it's maybe probably just more safer for the angler i mean yeah. having three hooks flopping around particularly when you're trying to grab a fish yeah i've, I've, I've come or, victim to six it. or nine depending on the <laughs> yeah. lure super spook. The lure, exactly yeah. but but you know and, and by the way we also did some tests some informal tests on those top water some some uh, uh john gill and i had some discussions he's convinced that that treble hook makes a difference on the back when they're nipping at the tail mm-hmm. and of course he he would know you know but yeah. but we don't see an effect the single hooks hook hook ratio is just about the only thing that might be throwing people off there is that typically the ones that miss those single hooks are little fish the big fish tend to get the hooks the, uh, you you miss a lot of the smaller mm-hmm. size fish so but but anyway there so that the verdict's still a little bit out on on that one but um they Talk- sure get through the grass better can you touch real quick on the lipping tool? Because there, I, I hear a lot of folks um, talk to me because if you lip a trout with the boga, it generally mm-hmm. it will tear the bottom jaw. Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll take that one okay. step further. So that's question A. And then question would be, question B would be holding the fish basically vertical. Yeah. 
versus supporting that body. So, and that's true. So both several things that the tearing the lip you're talking about, Wayne, or the, the tissue kind of in mm-hmm. the lower jaw assumes what you're talking about. That doesn't really do much that they, they recover from that. No problem. It'll grow back. It'll grow back. Okay. Um, and, but we don't, I mean, that's not a good thing. Don't get me wrong. Um, but, uh, that's not a, a, a death sentence or anything by any means. Now, what happens, Chris, you're talking about supporting the weight. Absolutely. Yeah. Because that fish is the water generally supports its weight. And when it's out of water, that's for yeah. long periods of time. So we recommend you, you hold the fish up in the, the boga grip sort of in line with the fish right. and you're supporting his weight. Now what happens, some people want to take the boga grip and I know people can't see what I'm doing here with my hands, <laughs> but they want to turn it perpendicular to the lip and kind of push mm-hmm. the fish up yeah. from the bottom that can break their jaw. That, that is dangerous. So we don't recommend that. So, you know, you're, you're still supporting the fish, but something interesting when we, we held a lot of these fish in captivity, um, in in the in field pens, but also working with the parks and wildlife in their hatchery in, over in Flower Bluff, and you could see your handprints for a month afterwards. I mean, it looked like wow. yeah. you know uh, Wayne being a police officer, he would <laughs> love that in terms of a crime scene. I mean, you, you almost <laughs> could see the 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 you know your your real fingerprints on them. But they they, re- they recovered. What was weird is that. Um, they were in, in the lab. They, they wouldn't eat real well at first. They were kind of skittish and, you know, just like probably stressed. But the, the minute they started eating, that went away just almost immediately. Mm-hmm. It was quite astonishing. The other interesting thing, Chris, I learned by, you know, I had, you'd had to feed the fish um, live things at first to get them to eat. Because, you know, we didn't want them to die from starvation. But we'd feed them pinfish or shrimp or whatever until they started eating dead dead things. Because we held them for a month because we wanted to know was there long term mm-hmm. mortality, not just short term mortality. And you can't work a lure too fast. Let me put it no. that. You, it's amazing the hours I spent watching how those fish eat a pinfish. And when they decide to eat it, there's no there's that pinfish doesn't stand a chance. And and how fast that happens is just nothing short of amazing. And so I learned a lot about my own personal fishing, watching how they, they sort of sneak up and even from several feet away that that pinfish doesn't stand a chance. So, so Angelo Cepedos, he's actually a good friend of mine. He was on the podcast. He's a, uh, uh, head of the Mississippi Gulf coast research lab, uh, trout, uh, trout hatchery there on the Mississippi Gulf coast. And he's also, uh, one of the folks that we, you know, the sale of the truth lure mm-hmm. or the truth color from, uh, Kay Wigglers, you know, in terms of financial support, uh, but aside from that, um, in that podcast, that's what he does, right? Is he grows fish, he grows trout in, in pins and giant pins, but he's also an angler. And that was the most enlightening po- podcast that I had in general was because he's seeing, um, again, kind of fish behavior. And what was super interesting to me, and if you haven't listened to that podcast, please go back and do that because it was remarkable. But what they would do is they would simulate times of the year by increasing and decreasing photo period, water temperature, salinity, things of that mm-hmm. nature. And they would they would simulate kind of growing seasons or a year, and they can condense basically two years in a one-ish. Yeah. Um, and what he would do is when he would turn on the lights for the to kind of simulate sunrise, the, the fish kind of posture in the water column and kind of where it sits, and then he would throw the bait. And, and he said along those same lines is, those fish are savage. I mean, they will eat <laughs> and yeah. eat a lot and eat just raw you know yeah. and so it's it's pretty cool um so i i share your sentiment and i wish i could just sit there in in the gulf coast research lab or sea center texas or whatever it is and and just watch because studying the fish and fish behavior particularly in times of year d- times of day 
uh, and things of that nature is, is super intriguing to me, particularly as an artificial only guy, right? So, so I'm one, trying to make trying to make it look as live as possible. Go ahead, Wayne. I'm sorry. Sorry about that, Chris. But one thing, what about getting the weight on the fish? That's fine to hang it for yeah. a short period of time. Yeah. And you imagine, Wayne, you know, the fish, they, they jump out of the water naturally, you know, and, and they're, they're fine a short period of time. You just don't want to hang it. I mean, you certainly want to get a weight, but we just, if, if it's hooked in the mouth and, you know, it's healthy and there was, especially not deep hooked, you're, it's not going to die. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, I mean, you don't, we, you don't want to break its jaw by missing because all that weight, you know, leveraging on the boga grip and, you don't want to just really, you know, do that for a long extended period of time. But yeah, it's because a lot of anglers have opinions on all what we're yeah, discussing yeah. right now. So particularly in Florida. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, you're right. Okay. Yeah. There well, is yeah. A, a, quite a bit of misinformation out there about uh, using these boga grips and, and just lipping tools in general. Um, but to kind of get back to what Greg was talking about with these mortality events, the 10% of these fish that die. Uh, and he was talking about deep hooking events and usually that being associated with some kind of gill damage. Uh, the, the question I would pose to people that are on the fence about this is if you are not using lipping tools, you're not grabbing that fish by the lip, you're going to grab it by the gills. And you're going to introduce additional mm-hmm. trauma to the gills, which that is the one kind of trauma that Greg's research has shown can can lead to you know post-release mortality. So just by nature of the fact of using these boga grips, you're not having to handle the fish by its gills. Inherently, there's going to be a higher survival rate associated with that. And in addition to that, uh, the other thing that I think was worth mentioning is Greg was talking about all the research we've done over the years where we put these acoustic tags in the fish and let them go. There's, there's a couple of things I want to touch base on here. The first being that this isn't, you know, we, we see that they're alive three weeks down the road. These last for years. And so, you know, we're tracking these fish for, you know, one, two, three years at times. So we know that there's long-term survival after release. And in addition to that, every single one of those fish that's released has been handled extensively with a boga grip. So there's very little doubt in our mind that, you know, these fish survive long term and that these do actually help. What about net uh, or net type, right? So I don't yeah. use a landing net. And then after that discussion with Angela Cepedos in terms of reducing stress, keeping that fish in the water after you kind of land the net or uh, land the fish, kind of keeping that fish in the water to kind of let that fish settle, then getting a, you obviously put your boga grip in there before taking a picture and then taking that picture, releasing it right back in the net, maybe undoing your yeah. bow grip, and then kind of release that fish from there. Well, Have you seen any sort of study on that? Yes, and we did the study of net, no net. And okay. we even put them in, do you put them on stringers, um, like a, you know, the normal stringer, you know, you put yeah. through the jaw or the lip, and then, or the dough nets, you know, if people might be familiar, it's like styrofoam thing yeah. with a, basically a mesh basket, or mm-hmm. there's a lot of different versions of right. that. None of that, Chris. It just d- didn't seem, you know, in a part of our control, we caught trout. We got a towel and wiped off every bit of slime, and then we waited a little while, and then we wiped it off again. <laughs> you know, it just, we don't, believe me, we don't encourage you to knock the slime layer off. That's the fi- fish's immune system. It's a defense layer. I mean, that, that's not a good thing. But the, the the point being, they're they're pretty resilient. I mean, they're, so we don't use nets. Mainly we don't use them because I, I, I think you, spend more time on hooking hooks from nets than you do the fish sure. and losing the fish and all of that. But some people like them, but you shouldn't be concerned with netting and we don't recommend bringing them in the boat and flopping on the boat. You know, you, you want to yeah, minimize yeah. their time out of the water, but they're, they're much more resilient than you think. I, I think most people are used to a trout, you know, maybe on a stringer and you've been wade fishing and of course then it's stressed and you know, then they die easy. But in general, if you, they can handle quite a bit of, of, 
um, stress. And, and our procedure for tagging these fish um, with electronic tags, and as I was mentioning, these tags are expensive. We do not want these fish to, to die, um, is to catch the fish. You put it on a boga grip and you walk it back to the boat where we do the scientific procedure mm -hmm. in the water. You know, right, you're kind right, of dragging right. it mm -hmm. along in the water. Um, if a fish's lips are, can't close, it can't breathe properly. So you want it to be able to, to um, close and uh, you don't want, like many people put a stringer through the end of the mouth through the bottom or top. Typically you want to go through the bottom of the mouth out through the top mm -hmm. so they can open and close. And we kept fish on stringer for and I forgot what our procedure was, but like an hour or something, and then put them through our release trials, and they did just fine if they were put on the stringer properly. But if you come out of the mouth with the stringer, that they're not gonna, they can't breathe properly. Super interesting. Mm -hmm. yeah. What about water temps? Yeah, Wayne, we did all water temps and just did not see an effect. I feel like there's a really warm water on big trout that are played to exhaustion. You might see something, but in general, we didn't you know, we, we played them pretty long in warm water with some really big trout and we just, they, they made it. Yeah. That's know. all that's the, I so. hear, you know, just for the average angler that that's, this is mm -hmm. all topic of conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we think, you know, I feel like there might be something there to play time and, and uh, water temperature, but we couldn't detect that scientifically. It was the only thing we could really see was just, just a deep hook. Yeah. And, so. and I, I mentioned Florida uh, because I, I've posted a picture uh, fish just horizontal and is actually a super fat fish, if you will. It was like almost like right at 26 inches, almost eight and a half. I mean, it was just, I mean, I'll show you the picture. It's crazy, but I, I had to get a picture. I mean, the girth on this thing yeah. was enormous. And uh, I posted that picture and I mean, I caught hell from folks in Florida, which is great. That's fine. And the reason I say that is because obviously that's kind of their mentality, which is great in terms of an angling, um, you know, uh, mindset there. And that's okay. But uh, it wasn't like I was holding that thing for minutes, you know, and, and ultimately yeah. it was there, took that picture and then kind of released it. And, and, but that's okay to have that mindset. But to, the truth to that is if you do yeah. it for a short period of time, it's not going to have a detrimental effect to that well, fish. Well, Quentin just finished a study up in Cedar Bayou with trout and redfish, and every single one of those was on a boga, and he had 100% survivorship. <laughs> yeah, over, over a two-year period. Now, we didn't tag any wow. fish that were gut-hooked because we knew those. You know, we didn't want to waste our tags on it we yeah. weren't doing a catch and release study like that we were doing a movement study mm -hmm. so we wanted the fish to survive but there it just you know now we don't recommend mishandling as we mentioned and that sort of thing but no we just don't see that as a problem for mm -hmm. trout and, and redfish and others there yeah. are some considerations too for for folks that are gonna you know hopefully go get uh, get in the market for one of these lipping tools but one of the things that we we do notice and i think greg can kind of speak to this as well is some of those plier style lipping tools they can cause some damage because really? as the fish is in the water and it's twisting and moving and shaking uh there's no play for that fish to roll versus like a boga, boga grip right yeah. the boga grips can spin and so uh, my one recommendation is personal opinion is that if you are going to go out and buy a lipping tool make sure whatever one you buy does have that articulating head that almost like a swivel correct correct yeah correct, yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah that's what you told me when we were fishing right and time. so i i do think that you know it's one of those things that it like greg said it comes down to to just practice and angler experience um and just having the right tools to, to get the job yeah. done but there are some considerations for and that those kind of clamp stuff. styles too you want to clamp it in the thin part of their mouth and not on their jaw you know you can you mm -hmm. can kind of do a little 
little damage by clamping a bone or some, something like that. Yeah. And I, I should mention, Chris, so Quentin um, leads our Release Sense program. It's Release Makes Sense, and so it's called Release Sense. And so it's a partnership between Shimano and CCA. Oh, that's cool. And so we, if anglers are interested, like I want to learn how to be better at catch and release and that sort of thing, they can go to releasesense.org, and we've got videos. Of course, we spend a lot of time studying red snapper and barrow trauma, you know, the, the, yeah. the, the gas... Um, related injuries or pressure related injuries from offshore. So there, a lot of that's associated with that rather that's not so much of an issue with inshore, but we've got videos of all of this showing ways to do that and what we recommend, how to put on a live release tournament for all species. Not, I'll, not I'll take a look trout. at that and I'll share a lot of that, but that was what you were telling me about that release since. Yeah, all the the, way oh, here. okay. Yeah, so that's just another program under the sport fish. Center. Yeah. It's yeah, just a program aren't underneath. Aren't y'all having an event though? Oh or yeah. Something? Good point. Thank you, Chris. Uh, Dr. Greg and his team will be coming to Port Mansfield. I'll when get you the date in just one second. <laughs> September um, to do some a seminar on release sense training. That's yeah, cool. And, and so the whole Can idea is that, like I was saying, we, we, we want people to consume fish and enjoy the meal because that's what, you know, that's, that's why we fish and enjoy that experience. But for, for those you want to release, if you want to become better at it, you know, go to releasesense.org and there's, all kind of information there. Okay. It, can anybody participate in that event? Or is that kind of by invite only? Or? Poor Mansfield? Yeah. No, anybody. We welcome everyone who wants to learn a little bit more about Release Sense and what it's about and what the Sport Fish Center does. That's Dr. Cool. Greg and his team. And it's September 19th, uh, Port Mansfield Chamber of Commerce is going to be hosting Oh, cool. It. Yeah, I might shoot building. down there. Uh, Mike and Trisha, if you're listening to that, I yeah. might, might have to swing by. It's, it's a Sunday. Stay at the and house. We'll, times will be, I don't, we don't have a time yet, but I think it's in the afternoon. <laughs> okay, that's cool. Um, now, I did want to pull a thread on this, and I kind of alluded to it right at the, at the jump. And and uh, so, last couple weeks, post-freeze, um, uh, actually, I fished a lot. I normally don't fish in the summertime at all. And I uh, fished a lot, actually, in the month of June. And so, I ended up catching a 29 and three-quarter uh, fish. But almost immediately thereafter, I ended up catching uh, two fish, males, uh, almost on back-to-back -back cast um, that were right around like the 21, 23 inch range. And then uh, going back almost every single trip in the general area, I was catching a lot of larger males. And so they were between 19 and 23, 24 inches. And so I was shocked. I mean, admittedly throughout my entire angling career, I don't think I've caught that many big males on both fingers and or both hands and both uh, feet, you know, uh, just don't, I don't do that. Right. And so I was thinking about it and trying to internalize it. And this is where I want to pull the thread a little bit is I think the, the general, you know, if you're going to harvest some, some fish, keep the smaller ones. Um, and they're between, you know, you kind of set, okay, keep the fish between 17 and 19 inches or 17, 20 inches, release everything over that. Well, I started kind of thinking about that. I'm like, since I've caught so few larger male trout, for lack of better terms, that's kind of a trophy trout in itself. Yeah. And, and I started kind of thinking about it more and I'm like, man, okay. So if I caught these big males and they're kind of in and around these much larger females, they're servicing those females. And so, uh, one of the things that Angelo's talked about was I, and doc, please tell me if I'm wrong here, but I think every male trout can service up to four or five female trout. Um, and so my point to all this is that 
if you're going to harvest, don't just go, okay, if it's between 17 and 20 inches, throw it in the box. Instead, if it's croaking and it's 20 inches, you might want to release that because that's some pretty serious genetics yeah. there. And you're talking about a fish that may not necessarily be in the in the food chain, but now actually servicing much larger females. Is that yeah? Yeah, so and thoughts and no, on that? that's that's very good practice. And and female trout typically don't have the ability to make a sound. They can make some sounds, but the the ones that are croaking are almost always male. I mean, they were getting after it. Yeah, you know, yeah, just the... and and especially even when you're taking them off the hook, and the, you know, that's those are almost surely males. And so, yeah, male trout just don't get that big. And in, in fisheries in general we tend to care about the females because they're the limiting, the limiting gametes are eggs. <laughs> so yeah. the males can, can, can fertilize many, many eggs, but you, so you want to protect the females. And typically what you're describing there is you, you've moved into a spawning aggregation. So they'll, the uh, males will move into an area that, that has traditionally been, a, and it's localized. I mean, it happens all over mm-hmm. the bay, but, but they'll get together and wait for the females to come in and they nudge them. Um, you know, a myth you hear a lot about is that, you know, trout hate croaker because they eat the eat eggs the out of their eggs, nest. Yeah. That's completely untrue. The female comes in, they nudge her to release the eggs, and then, of course, they fertilize them, and then the eggs just drift. They tend to do this in the evening and, and on, when tides or currents are coming in, so their eggs drift back into the seagrasses or marshes, And but they're at the whims of nature. But there's typically a lot more males there, and that's why you catch so many of those males. But a 23, 20, a, a male over 20 inches is a big one. Now, do they have like a certain gene code or, or, I mean, is that a much larger fish in terms of genetics? Is that something we would probably want to keep yeah, in the fishery? Yeah, th- but typically even smaller males are, you know, but, you know, the the whole thing too, you know, they're, they have the genes to grow big. So, you know, yeah. we t- tend to like that. So, but the, 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 the real only way to know if you have a, a male trout for sure, I mean, obviously they're, they're grunting, but when you do clean them and most people fillet away the rib cage and the mm-hmm. stomach belly piece is what we call it there's a there's a pink kind of uh reddish stripe along that that's called a sonic muscle and that's what they use to croak and mm-hmm. and uh that's how you know it's a male female bellies will just be completely that sort of whitish opaque color the males have a pink strip but at that point you know <laughs> catch and release isn't yeah, that yeah. <laughs> but but if you want to know you know that's that's how yeah. you really that's great everybody will enjoy that piece yeah. of information i promise yeah. you that well, I mean, That's so good. I was taking it not only as an angler, and I'm like, damn, okay, I just pretty much caught a 30-inch fish, and then all <laughs> yeah, of a sudden I'm yeah. catching large males. I'm like, I'm coming back to this no, general yeah. area because there's, they're probably servicing that size of female fish, yeah. right? And yeah. so I just got to figure out how to make those eat. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah. I, you know, I was just kind of trying to think about it holistically as like, well, damn, if, if those males are that big, may as well just release those too, and then no kidding, keep maybe some smaller you know, fish, obviously I'm not keeping anything this year, but in terms of just natural practice for everybody else to maybe something to consider, maybe releasing those larger male trout, uh, that way they can service. But I guess it may or may not have a play into it or yeah, you probably it, just be like, nah, you know, you the, the, those, those bigger trout, you know, in, in reality, the, 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 the spawning capacity of trout is so great that, that, you know, that's really not the issue. It's the extraction side of the problem. You know, retaining them mm-hmm. is, is more of the issue in terms of conservation. Even, a, even um, there's so many, I mean, trout begin to spawn 14, you know, for sure by 15 inches, most of them are spawning male and female. Mm-hmm. And so it, there's a lot of reproductive capacity. Certainly the ones that are big and have, have grown, and, you know, there's something special about their genes to grow that, that 
well. That's why we like to keep them in the gene pool. But as far as sheer productivity, it, it probably wouldn't do that much because there's it's not a reproduction problem. It's a it's a a growth and leave it. them in the water. Okay, that's actually yeah. so strike got it yeah. <laughs> um understand now i was just trying to think about it again i'm not a scientist sense. but just trying yeah. to uh consider because again i've just never caught a whole lot of large male yeah. trout but there is there no it, 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 there is something to because also you know the older fish tend we sometimes tend to think they're more experienced at spawning so in at a certain size um um this is true for red snapper especially uh, they have higher quality gametes at a certain size. So when you're young, you know, they're kind of just getting started, but there's the, the middle, those middle groups are the real, the ones that have really mm-hmm. um, uh, figured it out in terms of spawning and the yeah. quality of their offspring or higher chance of survival and all that sort of thing. Um, one of the things that was brought up a couple of times uh, in the pot, in the podcast with uh, various guests was, you know, just behavior of man and kind of, you know, our, kind of routine, if you will, running shorelines now, <clears throat> excuse me, in kind of our fishing behaviors and whether or not those fish have kind of adapted to our fishing behavior. So they were up skinny and we couldn't get up to them because they were skinny. Uh, and now, you know, we find maybe less fish skinny and maybe they're moving deep or whatever it is. And so they've modified their behaviors as a result of our own angling behaviors have y'all seen anything like that for sure the fish well now we have to think about there isn't a fish alive in our bays that hasn't experienced that (laughs) you know they so so the the trout you know are living let's say nine years is a very old trout thing live a little longer than that but so most of them you know they're 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 they have experienced they don't know a time that boats aren't you know running over them all Mm -hmm. the time and redfish live 50 years but all those in the bay are, are much, you know, five, six years old kind of thing. And the, the older ones are out in the Gulf. You know, they don't come back into the Bay, really. So, yeah, they're, I, I don't know if you would say they're used to it, but they don't know what it's like to not have that, you know, they're, they're, they haven't been alive to experience that. But they, uh, boating does alter their behavior, and we can see that on our acoustics. And, and, that, and we thought for many years to try to do a study to, to look at that. And and we, we started to do that because then we can look at, we have really dense arrays where we know at any one time where that fish is. But the issue is the fish move so much, they move out of our array. So it's a very difficult thing to pin down. But, but we do see that some, and we do see fish altering their, their behaviors um, because of that. But we don't have a lot of good science that mm-hmm. really nails that. And of course, from experience, you know, I just can't experience that. Yeah, you know, seeing what fish do. In fact, if you're, if you think of it, you know, talking about using science, you know, you can use that to your advantage. You know, uh, uh, for example, don't move a lot on a Saturday morning and those fish will come to you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, you know or, it's a trick. You know. Or finding some of those areas less pressured. Yeah, you know, you those will fish too. will just kind of gravitate to yeah. those areas naturally just because it's, it's safe harbor, if yeah, you will. exactly. Um, uh, also, two of things, you know, just in terms of those fish, maybe again, feeding behaviors, you know, typically feeding during the day. And now, obviously, with so many boats and less boats in the evening and or at night, those mm-hmm. fish becoming maybe nocturnal. Yeah. And things, things of that nature. So, uh, just interesting in general. It, the, the, these fish are amazing to me. I think, in, you know, nature in itself is just such a wonder, you know, of how they can modify themselves and adaptation, right, is obviously a, a huge component to that. But it's pretty awesome to see these fish. And that's why I love them. You know, yeah. I think that's why we all love them is because one, they're hard to catch. Um, but they're just, they're just, I don't know. They're intriguing. Yeah. Yeah. Pat Murray, a great friend of mine and, and fishing partner a lot, you know, says, you know, it, what's interesting about these, because we love to fish for big trout. 
and, and you know it's it's elusive but they're attainable <laughs> so in other words they're, it's hard to do but if you if every if the stars line up you know it can happen and that i think that's really what keeps us um, keep us going after yeah. them so well, cool. We're, we're actually at about an hour. Um, do you guys, um, or I'll go around the room if y'all want in terms of, you know, I know y'all have maybe some things that I haven't thought of in terms of what he, what y'all wanted to cover. So I'll kind of go around and maybe kind of spark maybe some more discussion. But uh, if we can, we'll just go around the room and, and see if y'all have anything in terms of closing it out, the show. So Wayne, anything? No, I'm, I'm good. I'm just happy to be part of the program and helping out where I can. And hopefully we can get the... Uh, the catch and release catches on a little bit more in the next couple of three years or for yeah. the unforeseeable future for that matter. Right. Um, and then hopefully get these, I continue on my snook mission. Yeah. That's yeah. kind of my, yeah. I, I'm really. Wayne has to blindfold us when he takes <laughs> things on the snook mission. But no, I'm just kidding. But uh, he does swear it's the secrecy. So that's fine. <laughs> Quentin, you got anything, man? No, we uh, definitely appreciate you guys having yeah. us on here. And yeah. it's been a, a pleasure for us to it, be here. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, honestly, for the hospitality, really appreciate it. And, uh, appreciate your followership genuinely uh, i do um just the speckled truth the podcast and things of that nature it's again humbling for me to to know that you know guys like you and really everyone in this room kind of listens and it's kind of cool to be part of it because really it's ours right it's our it's our fishery and hopefully we can all get after taking care of our fishery well, you've, you've done a great job of creating a community of, of serious anglers that are interested in targeting these fish and improving constantly and as i'm sure greg can attest to there's very very few people that uh, you know, work in our lab that are not avid <laughs> anglers themselves. So, yeah. I mean, we're definitely of the same mindset. Cool. But thank you very much. Yeah, you got Quinn. All yeah, right, Doc, well, last well, word. And, and thanks, Chris. One, one also thanks for your service. Oh, <laughs> that's yeah, that's a big yeah. deal that I want to make sure, you know, that's Absolutely. that's where it's really, Absolutely. really yeah. matters. And so we appreciate that. And uh, that, of course, allows us to even do what we're talking about here today. But we're flattered that you just want to hear from us. I think, you know, it's what we do and the kind of stuff you're doing just as a great partnership to, to leverage each other's listeners and that kind of thing. Cause we want, we want anglers to have the information to make them better mm -hmm. anglers and improve the resource. You're going to hear soon. We're rolling out some ambassador programs. Wayne's already one of them. It will be in a formal way. And, and so we'll have some leaders in the field that really can help carry the conservation message that are willing to do that, but they're also believe in it as, as mm -hmm. well. And, and so uh, I think having that, that sort of science and, angler partnership is just really, really important. And we've got groups like yours that are actually reaching out and, and delivering that information. And so I think it's just really, really good deal. Of course, you know, we, we folks can go to our sport fish center. They just go to sportfishcenter.org. They can learn about all the, all the projects we have um, going on and, and for, or feel free to reach out to us if they have any questions and yeah. that sort of thing. So this is season two, as I tell uh, most guests is that, you know, as we continue to, you know, broadcast the podcast and create, you know, this content, this audio content, this library of, of stuff, you know, I'd love to have you on again, Doc, uh, uh, and, yeah. and Quentin, uh, really to maybe talk about maybe some things that you're seeing that we talked, yeah. touched on today that are kind of in the infancy of, of study. Yeah. That'd be pretty cool to kind of see that kind of come through the maturation process of, of that yeah, study. I'd be happy that. to do that or special topics or, yeah. or whatever. That's, that's So um, maybe I'll throw that out to yeah. our listeners is like, hey, you know, if there's a special topic that you want to hear, um, or something that, you know, maybe want to dive into in one of these podcast episodes, particularly with Dr. Greg and, and team, you know, throw that out there. But I uh, really appreciate it, uh, Doc and, and Quentin, Wayne. Thanks for your time. I really, really, really appreciate it. So um, for everybody else listening to the show, 
I truly appreciate uh, your listenership. I want to throw a shout out to all of our sponsors. Please support those guys. And always remember, take what you need, release the rest, tight lines, and God bless. Take care.